Tonight I'd like to begin by asking you if you have any questions about your practice. I'm curious what you what happens when you sit, when you sat tonight. I'm curious if you have any questions, any descriptions, comments, and anything about the teachings that you would like me to speak about. And I have a few little ideas that I, I'll probably weave through whatever happens tonight, but before I start, I thought I would hear from you. Please. Yes. So earlier this evening, Marcus told me a story where he told me that when he was practicing, he started to inquire into uh, not simply the thoughts that were going through his mind, but what was the intention behind them, correct? What was the engine that was driving them? And when he attuned himself to the intention, what, what it was that was driving the thoughts, he felt, you said you felt joy, you felt love, and you, didn't you say you started to cry? Started to tear and, uh, and then just now you spoke about the... Uh, The connection between love and awareness, that, uh, that they seem to be one and the same. I, you just said it. I would have nothing to add to that. Love and awareness are the same. Awareness brings affection. I, I think I may have said earlier that, uh, that just, the in, just the inclination of our our mind to want to understand how it works, just to pay attention in order to see what's there, what is, and what's the engine that's driving these thoughts and feelings and actions. Just that curiosity itself, I suggested, is an act of love. It's a form of love, a love of truth. And the more one practices, the more truth and the love of truth grows, and the um, and the, I would say that the devotion to uh, our illusions about ourselves become less. So the, you could say our life becomes, as one teacher put it, and I think I'll try to find the passage, that our life becomes more about a love of truth than love of self. And, but nevertheless, all of our practice is a, a, an act of love and I notice that every time that I have more understanding of, of the, my own 
delusions, I, I end up being much more tender and kind to myself. I'm just less critical when I have more understanding. And when my view widens, then, I, then I'm uh, just much, much less harsh, much more understanding that the way I am uh, depends on so many, so many what we call causes and conditions, the, the myriad influences that have come together to make me the way I am. It's just, it's, I'm, not, I'm not to blame. <laughs> As I, my friend Wes says, I am not my fault, and you are not your fault. So, yeah, love, please. Yes. Is there a retort for the question about the thought bubbles that float through our minds uh, that often when, when we sit, the openness of our mind and the stillness becomes a fertile ground for creativity and for problem solving? Any of you ever notice that? Yes. Please nod. <laughs> it is a, a universal experience, and it is, it is, it's inevitable that if you sit quietly, um, many, many things will come, many, all kinds of create, creative ideas. If you are, uh, if they come, wonderful, no problem. If you are on the other hand, if you want to train in, in continuous mindful attention and you want to train in the power of mindfulness and learn how to trust awareness and it's liberating, it's healing, it's uh, all the power that comes and all the, all the freedom that comes through practicing mindfulness, if that is your aim, then you can take note of the creative solutions and creative projects that flow, but that's not what you want to dwell on. That's not what you want to extend or necessarily use the practice for. You want to use all of those moments as moments to simply be mindful. And having said that, sometimes some of those creative solutions or uh, epiphanies or whatever they are—they are so—they are, so, uh, are so impactful that it's not possible to simply notice them as just another thought. And if we—if you notice the—the the, that they have that resonance of importance and meaning and all that—to let that be felt, let it be just another moment of a perhaps a different kind of mindfulness, just a much more. Um, just a much more receptive, much more um, just nurturing kind of mindfulness. 
So we have different lenses. Sometimes it's just just receiving things with a kind of graciousness and ease. And other times it's about precision. It's about seeing not just the content and the meaning of a particular thought bubble, but to see the nature of it, to see... And that's what the, pra- the practice of mindful attention moves in the direction of not so much the content of what's in our mind, but what the, what the nature of thought is itself, what the nature of those bubbles are. And not the historical nature of the bubble, but the, just the, the creative expression that every bubble is that, it is, that it comes out of nowhere. In fact, we ha- no one... Is, has ever seen the origin of a thought. So that's a mystery in and of itself. These thoughts emerge. You can't, it is possible to see that there's often a connection between tension in the body or, or some kind of um, perception or some kind of, um, some kind of idea of oneself and that tends to produce a kind of constriction it often comes out of liking and disliking, and often there's a pressure that then uh, expresses itself, releases itself in the form of a lot of discursive thinking. But having said all of that, we still don't know from where thoughts arise. Definitely we don't know historically. All we know is that thoughts emerge, and then where, what happens to them? Where are all the thoughts that you had since you woke up this morning? Where did they go? And can you even find them if you look for them? And where and what is left after the last thought has ceased before the next one comes? What's here? And that's why that that cessation of the thought bubbles. Even though thoughts are wonderful, thoughts who are, are, are to our door of perception called mind as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue. Even though it's a natural sense experience, it seems that it's a lot more peaceful after the last thought has ceased and before the next one comes. Because I think it's after that last thought has ceased and before the next one comes that we begin to taste, and this is the beauty of, a, of sitting together, the beauty of sitting at all, is we begin to taste what or who we are uh, beyond our situation, beyond our story, beyond the illusory version of ourselves. I was thinking tonight about about the all of the in some ways I was thinking about the four noble truths but I was thinking about it in terms of necessary or inevitable suffering inevitable stress inevitable challenges and then I was thinking about the unnecessary suffering or the optional suffering and I was thinking about it partly in terms of the unnecessary as all the things that we uh, say to ourselves, all of the things we say to others that are maybe not so skillful, that are critical, harmful, shameful, all of the 
mostly the thought forms, the thought bubbles that are born of this, uh, of this psychological self, this illusory sense of self, the one that's, that's wounded, the one that's, that's not enough, the one that's, that always needs improvement. And that is the illusory you. That's the imagined you. And that's that the suffering that comes through all of our, much of our psychological suffering is unnecessary. It's not the inevitable. It's the optional. And it's the suffering that is addressed entirely through the practice of insight, through the practice of loving kindness. And then all the actions that are born of that illusory self, where we're so, where our view of ourself is so insecure that it's always being threatened. And then when it's threatened, we often feel diminished in some way. And what do we do when we feel diminished and insecure? We strike out. When we feel helpless, hopeless, all of a sudden that we feel the ground shaking underneath us. We don't just embrace that with loving kindness and attention usually. We just we, we start spewing venom either in our mind or in our speech or in, even in our actions. So that's unnecessary suffering that we cause ourselves and others through our body, speech, and mind, through the ways that we treat our bodies. How did I get on this topic? Wow. The ways we treat our bodies. Our bodies, by nature, will have lots of what we call dukkha, just the fact of you know the basic sickness, aging, dying, death. That's the inevitable part, but the optional part is how you feed it, what you drink, how much you drink, uh, you know, what you eat, how much sugar, how much salt, you know, all the things. And these are the things that are really optional. And our mindful attention and our loving kindness can create the conditions to be able to see what is it that we are doing, what kind of suffering are we creating that's completely optional. Now, we can't do much about the inevitable part, but we can do so much about the optional part. Would somebody remind me how I got on this topic? Oh, your creative, creative bubbles. Yeah, see, that was a creative bubble I just followed. And anyway, any other questions, please? You love the silence. You can't. You, you sometimes you wonder why you don't spend more time there. But the the question that I also had, so that was my experience in Jersey City, was kind of related to what you were just saying. Is I recognize triggers, but I don't. You recognize I'm triggers. You you recognize triggers, but you're not able to deactivate them. I think a first good, a great first step for all of us is to recognize triggers, and to recognize them not just 
not just in retrospect, but ideally to begin to recognize them in real time, to know with clear comprehension that you're being triggered. And, and if you're not able to notice in real time that you're being triggered, in other words, having there be a pause before it, it gets projected, before it, blame, before whatever it is that, or either internal or external blame gets set in motion, or the illusory me gets, gets uh, exaggerated again, if you're not able to, then, then you're not practicing enough. It's not a personal failure. It's just a matter of the, the power of mind. It's the matter of the momentum of mindfulness. If, because it is inevitable if you practice regular mindfulness and you really sit every day and you really try to, from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to bed, try to keep that cover of awareness, you will start catching it as it's happening. And that, by its nature, begins to discharge that, that power. Now, it's not to say that you won't miss a lot of times. And, you, and it's not to say that you won't, because of the, the effect of past, past habit, that you won't go down the rabbit hole again and again and again. But you will start catching it more often. And so it's one thing to reflect on it and realize what your triggers are. And that's helpful to a degree, but it's really about catching it in real time. So if you... So without, without making any kind of self-judgment uh, about it and without making yourself tight and, uh, and feel more insufficient uh, by, by uh, intending to practice it, as long as you don't diminish yourself by the, the aim to fix it, uh, just do it. Just practice all the time. Don't waste a single moment. How do you feel when I say that? Intimidated. Intimidated. Pressured. No pressure, though. It should be the, the intention to practice should be the intention to relax. And if you're more relaxed, you're going to get triggered less. Please. No, Amy. Wait, there was a hand. Be, what's your name? Polly had her hand up first. I'll be back. Please. Working through a lot of PTSD. Thank you. Beautiful. Perfect. How to work with PTSD, it's a big topic, uh, and I'm not an expert in PTSD. However, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who, with various traumas of different sorts. Uh, and how do, you, how do you work with that in a long sitting? And this is considered a long sitting? <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think that, um, that you did exactly the most healthy, wise, loving thing by stopping and looking around and enjoying the room. Because it, when we are, when in moments when things are very quiet, it often 
the quiet often mimics states of uh, what we would call fight or flight or freeze. And those states are kind of dissociative states where we just kind of check out to a certain degree or just lose a sense of grounding, lose a sense of wholeness. And because of that, the, the practice itself at times will, you will feel activated. And what we, what we learn in our life unconsciously is to, at those moments when we get triggered, is to completely check out, is to distract ourselves any way we can, but not to do it necessarily very consciously. And so then we end up spending a lot of time in fantasy. We spend a lot of time either stuffing, feeling, suppressing things, or, or eating, or all kinds of things. But we, it, we tend to go on automatic pilot. So in meditation practice, when the same triggers happen, even though there is a value at being able to learn over time to be able to to have that real-time mindfulness so that you can actually feel what you're feeling and have it be uh, metabolized and, and where you are more able to stay in your body and stay in the, in the continuity of mindfulness, even though that's the direction, and even though there's a great value at being able to track what it is that's happening moment to moment and see how it unfolds so that you can experience that even that those very intense feelings are changing conditions like the weather. And to know that is very liberating because then you don't have to be quite as afraid. You can see that everything just comes and goes and it's not as monolithic and as permanent as we sometimes think. But sometimes we're not, because, because we've had the habit so much of associating those moments with, with whatever the the trauma was, or whatever the uh, stress, we're not so able to do that without checking out. So what, what the practice, what we tend to um, do is, yes, touch into the felt experience that you're having. See if you can feel it for a moment. But if it feels it any way too much, look around. Or either first find something, if you can, find something in your body that you can accommodate, something that's more neutral. Or look around just as you did. And it is a wonderful, it has a very healing effect on our mind to know that the whole world is not traumatized. So you look around in this room as perhaps you have a, it has pleasant associations for you, a little, or at least neutral. Yeah, so you can just look and see, and hopefully as you look around, don't get too caught up in your thoughts about the room. Just, just use it as a, a resource to orient yourself to the present moment. And that reminds your psyche, or your, that reminds your, that, that frightened part of you, that freaked out part of you, oh, that the whole world isn't freaked out. There's, this, there's safe ground here, at least in this moment that I'm seeing. Or if you're feeling some place in your body, oh, there's a safe place in my body I can feel. So that's the so what we can do is go back and forth between that um, that upset that we're feeling. We learn how to accommodate that, but moving away as quickly as you need to, back and forth, back and forth. Does that speak to your question or no? No, Amy.
You haven't haven't been doing much long formal sitting. Yeah, even though you don't sit, you you do a lot of things meditatively or not a lot of distraction. Yeah, but it really does feel like, oh, okay, that nothing, nothing that I need to do except whatever I am doing. So you're mostly doing one thing at a time, just doing what, knowing what you're doing when you're doing it. Yeah. Beautiful. Ah, we live in a society that rewards multitasking. So you start comparing yourself to, yeah. you start feeling like you're not doing enough. Yeah. yeah. So that you know what to do. Just notice that. <coughs> See, that's the that's the illusory self that's just creating, creating a sense there's something wrong, something wrong with me. I should be different than the way I am. That describes somebody that doesn't exist. Please, in the back. Please speak up as loudly as you can. What was the last thing you said? That there is kind of a disassociation. Yeah, a, a, really. an asso- association? A disassociation? Yeah. Explain to me what you mean by disassociation. Uh, yes. I'm not really following. He's saying that, excuse me, I think I understand this gentleman saying that you're saying that moment by moment or being in the present moment, that's a very present moment. And I think what he, this gentleman is saying is that a long run, a long swim, it's like a long present moment. Yes, a long run and a long swim is... How about when you're present? Your whole life is a present moment. Your whole life is one long present moment. The whole idea of a past and a future are just another idea in the long present. You've never left the present. It's just an idea. Anything other than the present is an idea. 
So there's just one there's so there's just one here and now. There's just one reality that surrounds you in every instant. And you've never left it, you've only imagined that you have. So what we when you're running, when you're driving, when you're walking, when you're doing whatever you're doing, you're always present. Now you may not you may not be clearly comprehending that you're present because we tend to be habitually absent-minded. We tend to be lost in a dream or we end up being fantasizing and the sense of clear of mindfulness that clear that attention that's right here that's clearly comprehending that we're here that comes and it goes. But that even though that comes and goes we're still always here. We just sometimes we're clouded by m- memory or plans or lost. Sometimes we're clearly knowing. Things are being known very consciously. So part of the practice is to realize that our whole life is a long present. And forget the word present. It's just now or it's reality. It's just it's endless. It's eternal. It doesn't stop. Now does not stop. Ever, ha- it's never stopped. That is the totality of our life. Is now. Can't say it enough. Can't say it. Can say it a thousand different ways. If, when I'm walking or running, that awareness of that presentness sustains where it lasts for a long, long time, where I'm less likely to be absent-minded, less lost in my imagination of where I'm going or where I've been. If that happens, and that's what that happens through practicing mindful attention, that happens practicing concentration, the conditions that lead to concentration, when that happens, that it seems as though the present moment, or it seems as though the present uh, gets wider, it gets more open. It seems time, our perception of time begins to shift. Our, not only does the perception of time begin to shift, but the desire to be any other place than where I am always starts to diminish. And the more that I am just right where I am, inhabiting the life that I'm living eternally now, always now, and the less that I want to be, I'm caught in a state of grasping or wanting to be somewhere else, I start getting happier and happier and happier. I start feeling much more connected to everything around me, I start to feel less and less like I'm this little, narrow, isolated individual. I start feeling that uh, I don't exist alone. I, so I feel less lonely. I feel much more, as I, we talk about every week, I feel much more caring. I want to care for everything and everyone around me. And I feel more joy and I feel more balance. And then I, not only that, I start to see more about what's actually really happening here. I'm not just seeing my fantasy about what's happening. I'm not just seeing 
based on memory all the time. I'm actually seeing things freshly. And my senses become quite clear. My sounds become more alive. Sights become more vivid. Taste, everything comes alive. And all I did was just, as Srinas or Gadatta said, I've just, by practicing insight, I brushed the dust of memory. But I never went anywhere. I've never gone anywhere. And as he, as he puts it, and I've shared this quote many times here, when your mind is kept away moment by moment, or one long moment, longer moment, when it's kept away from its preoccupations, when the mind is kept away from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your true nature, your natural state. Once you've tasted that, you will never be the same person again. The unruly mind, the discursive mind, will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return as long as the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken, grasping and attachment to someplace else ends, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. So that, in another way of saying, you just stay where you are. Some of you uh, have heard this story from, uh, from my teacher Punjaji, where he, where he was asked uh, at the end of uh, one of my colleagues, James Barras, took uh, hours of video of Punjaji, this wonderful teacher in India, and, and, and all the videos of him have him having have him laughing one moment, and then literally the next moment crying, and just this feast of of changing conditions, all happening in an unfolding present. And he gave all kinds of teachings, but toward the end of the the stay, James said, "Well, please say something to all those many people back in America, back in the West, who would like to." taste a little bit of your teaching. And he then looked into the camera and he got this grin on his face and he said, stay where you are. (laughs) What do you think he meant by that? Don't come to India, first of all, but he meant stay in this living present that goes on and on and on. And you will, as Ajahn Chah says, you will see many wonderful and strange things arise and pass, come and go, but you'll be still. This is the happiness of a Buddha. You'll see many rare and wonderful animals come and it's like a clear forest pool. Many strange and wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool, but you'll be still. This is the happiness of a Buddha. This is why we constantly, why the Buddha started with the first foundation of mindfulness was mindfulness directed to the body, to orient you, 
to this living present. And Plotinus, in the year 205, says, Let the soul banish all that disturbs. Let the body that envelops it be still. And all the frettings of the body and all that surrounds it, let earth and sea and air be still and heaven itself, and let the body think of the spirit streaming, pouring, rushing, shining into it from all sides while it stands quiet. This is what we begin to feel, that streaming, that living present. And if you really connect with it, with being here, just simple moments of mindful attention, mindfulness of the body, you just will stop wanting to be somewhere else as much. Please, Tanya. Um, so, um, giving yourself loving kindness in moments of feeling challenged, like you're feeling inadequate, you're feeling insulted, you're feeling blamed, whatever—it's really difficult. How, I mean, it's like a contradiction. I feel like in those moments, when I suddenly give myself loving kindness, I'm like. Hard. It's when you feel undeserving of love, it's hard to offer yourself love and kindness. Yes. Then at those moments when you're in pain, that sounds like a moment when you're in pain. Yes. That's a moment where you offer yourself compassion. Both for your for your unskillful actions and for the pain that you're experiencing. So it may not be it may not be congruent to say may you be happy or just to offer friendliness. That would be ideal if you could, and that became your default your default reaction to to seeing yourself uh, act unwisely or get upset or whatever it is. Um, but sometimes it's what's most congruent is to just speak to the state of mind that you're in. It means tracking. What's the state of your heart right now at those moments? Are you... Are you um, and if you really notice, I'm really, I'm really hating on myself. I'm really judging myself. That's painful. That's hurtful. If you really get that, then you can provide... It's much easier to provide compassion. I care about myself. I care about my suffering. I care about my actions that cause me suffering. And approach yourself that way. Um, If you can be friendly, great. But it sounds like the way that you're doing it doesn't seem like it was congruent with the state that you're in. No. We actually have to call it a day. Maybe we could come up and we'll finish the conversation. Anyway, let's just sit quietly for a moment, and you don't have to adjust your posture for that. (laughs) Just let the... We'll go back to Plotinus. Let earth and sea and air be still in heaven itself, and let the body think of the spirit as streaming, pouring rushing and shining into it from all sides while it stands quiet. 
So feel the quietness that surrounds you and is in you. This is your natural state, quietness. So feel supported by the silence of your own awareness, the silence of the space, and treat that silence as a as though you are bathing in a field of loving kindness and caring. And if you're able to just let yourself be bathed by loving kindness, as though the loving kindness is saying, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe, may you be well, may you accept yourself as you are, may you have ease in your heart. Or if you're really feeling a lot of distress right now, let the silence have the voice of, I care about you, I care about your suffering, may you be free of suffering. And whatever benefits that you've gained from being quiet, alone, together with sitting with everyone tonight, and whatever Blessings have come from our time together. We also remember that we, it's not just for ourselves that we practice, we practice for all beings. So we share the blessings of our practice and wish the same for other beings as we do for ourselves. May all beings find happiness and peace. May all beings feel safe. May all beings feel healthy and strong. May all beings have ease in their hearts and well-being. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings live with ease. May our practice continue day in and day out to be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. Thank you for your questions, your comments, descriptions, and thanks for your practice especially, and thank you for your generosity. And also, uh, just another reminder that Yvonne will be here next week by popular demand. She just did a half day for us at the Mindfulness Care uh, Institute and was very, very well received. So please come and sit as you always do. and. It's not just for yourself. We always are, pract- are, sh- are showing up here as an act of generosity in itself just to support other people's practice. So thanks again. See you next in two weeks. I'll be back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.